Let me, um, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for um, tonight. Uh, it's a lot of fun th- stuff, um, a lot of new faces and old faces. Um, but through it all, we're thankful that you are um, faithful to us and that you meet us here even now. Um, I, God, I do pray that for our high schoolers here, maybe coming to Friday night is maybe in some ways perfunctory. It's something that they just do, don't think about doing. Um, but I do pray that you would that the Spirit would in fact uh, fall afresh tonight. Um, that as we look to Scripture, that we would um, ourselves be conformed to it. But more than that, that we would see Jesus clearly through the Spirit. And uh, we pray that in doing so, that you would actually knit us to be the sort of family that you desire for us to be. Um, this particular high school to be, high school group to be. And so, Father, thank you for. Um, your grace. It's good to, it's so, Father, it's so good to see uh, these students. And so uh, I do pray that you'd make this next uh, 40, 45, 50 minutes, maybe 55, um, profitable for us. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Lonnie. Um, all right. Okay. Um, well, welcome back to High School Group. Uh, this is our first Friday night official evening back. So uh, some of you guys have already started your uh, fall semester, which is crazy. Um, if you are a new here as a visitor or you haven't been around in a while, uh, or you're a ninth grader, welcome. Um, in fact, if you are a ninth grader, like I mentioned, I'm going to have you guys do this. If you don't mind, can you just stand so that we can welcome you and clap? Um, ninth grader, please stand. Wow. Our ninth graders, amazing, amazing, amazing. Please welcome them. Please be nice to them, okay? Thank you, guys. Dude, Ethan, you're ninth grade, man? That's crazy. Oh my gosh. Okay, all right. Um, in many ways, uh, tonight's message is for you, ninth grader. Uh, it is meant to introduce you uh, to the culture of this high school group and what God desires for you as a new participant in this high school ministry. These are maybe the most important formative years of your adolescent life. And at the same time, uh, tonight's message is also for those of you who have been here for a while. That as much as the new ninth graders need introducing to the culture of this high school group, the rest of us might need some reintroducing and some recalibrating as you begin a fresh new school year. And if you're not a ninth grader, I want to ask you a very specific question. What sort of high school group culture do you want our new ninth graders to be stepping into? What sort of impression do you want the ninth graders to take away from their interaction with you and with others in this high school group over the years? I mean, even if you didn't want to be here, like your parents made you come or something, guess what? You're here. You're not merely a neutral presence. You add something to the culture of this high school group, whether for good or for ill, whether you intended to or not. And so I want to ask you again, what sort of culture do you want to set? As those older, you are able to set the culture of this high school group. So what do you think this high school group is to be about? What do you think? And I'm going to relay this question back to our ninth graders. If you are a ninth grader, What sorts of expectations do you have of this high school group coming in? Maybe write those things down right now in your notes. What do you hope to learn from the high schoolers around you 
And what do you hope that this high school group would be about? Um, like I mentioned earlier, I, was, uh, I just returned from a two-month uh, sabbatical, and over this two-month break, I had thought a lot about this high school group. I was told not to think about ministry while I was on break, but even on break, as a pastor, I just couldn't help myself. And as I was thinking about you guys, this high school group, and thinking about you all, I thought to myself, what would I want this high school group to be about when I come back? What sort of legacy will this youth ministry have long after I've gone? Would the core DNA of this high school group look differently 10 years from now? I want youth group to be blank. How would I fill in this blank? How would you fill in that blank? I want youth group to be, you don't have to say it out loud. What do you think? Well, after two months of contemplation of being away from you guys for two months, I came to the realization that more than anything else, I want this high school group to be a spirit-filled family, which is where we get the the title for this message from, a spirit-filled family. More than being a knowledgeable, gifted, talented, unique, funny, fun, evangelistic, or cool high school group, as great as those things are, I want this group to be a spirit-filled group. Now, I know when I mention the word spirit-filled, it freaks some of you out and it conjures up images of weird things, weird Christian stuff, like speaking in tongues, doing a bunch of miracles, doing the extraordinary stuff that, you know, the apostles did in the early church. But there's something more basic and fundamental to being spirit-filled. Something has gone wrong with our theology if the first thing that we associate with being spirit-filled is gifts and abilities, Because before the Spirit gives us gifts and abilities, the Spirit gives us character and virtue. The Spirit doesn't first give us what we can do, but rather gives us what we can be. New people, new hearts, new motives, new character. Before helping us to do, the Spirit helps us to be. More important to being a gifted student or a talented athlete or a strong leader is character. Have you ever noticed how the fruit of the Spirit, the proof of the Spirit's presence, isn't gifts, abilities, intellect, or skill? What is the proof of the Spirit's presence in your life? It's love. It's joy. It's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A gifted student can still be an unloving student. A talented athlete can still be an impatient athlete. A strong leader can still be an abrasive leader. The Spirit helps us to be before he helps us to do. And so what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to be a Spirit-filled family? What does it mean for this high school group to be Spirit-filled? And the Apostle Paul gives us two really tangible ways So if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 25, and we'll read all the way to chapter 6, verse 2. It's only four verses, four short verses, and if you can believe it or not, we'll probably spend another 45 minutes here, but four short verses, Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 to chapter 6, verse 2. It is the first letter that the Apostle Paul had written. (laughs) as an apostle. 
Verse 25, Paul says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the word of the word of God. And so the key idea, what the Apostle Paul shows us is that a spirit-filled high school group is distinguished by two specific characteristics. A, high, a spirit-filled high school group does not compare with one another, but cares for one another. And we'll, look, we'll take that apart in two parts. The first part is we do not compare with one another. Look at, look at, verses, uh, look at verse 25 again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, there are some things that we need to understand, remember, remember before trying to understand these two ver- this verse here. The first is, who is the Spirit? Since the beginning of the early church, since the beginning of the church period, the church has recognized and confessed that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Christians, we must believe that God is Trinity. God has always been eternally and will forever be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is what makes Christianity stand alone and unique against all other world religions. Christianity is not the same as Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses. The Christian God is uniquely and only Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, not three personalities, not three peas in a pod. One God in three divine persons. Now, how does that actually help us understand who the Spirit is? Well, the third person of the, Spirit, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is known as the Helper. And we're getting a little bit closer now, but what does that actually have to do with our passage? It has everything to do with our passage because if you are a Christian, the amazing reality is that you have the Holy Spirit. He is your helper. And as the helper, one of the surest ways to know if the living God is living inside of you is your desire to help and come alongside others. The surest way to know if the living God is living inside of you is not knowledge or length of time coming to lighthouse or because you prayed a prayer. The surest way to know if the living God is living inside of you is your desire to help others. To borrow the words of the Apostle John, we help because he first helped us. Which is what makes verse 26 the very opposite of helping others. Take a look at the next verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I think we know conceit, provocation, and envy are bad. So, of course, it's the opposite of living by the Spirit. But how? It's because the word for conceit in Greek is literally translated empty of glory. Conceit is a deep insecurity, a perceived lack of honor and glory that leads us to need to prove to others about our worth. Conceit is either driven by the need to be better than others or to catch up to others. 
at the heart of conceit, in other words, is comparison. Always thinking that you can be better than this person. Always thinking, thinking that you can be smarter than this person. Always thinking that you, can all, that you can be better looking than this other person. And just by way of story, back when I was uh, first started out as the youth pastor six years ago, I started with a chip on my shoulder. And you probably wouldn't have even recognized this or knew this because you guys were like not even here yet. As one of the newest pastors on staff, I felt like I needed to prove myself, my worth, my abilities, and my skills to the other pastors and elders. And in particular, there was this one pastor friend whom I had always found myself comparing with. Everything that he did, I thought that I could do better. Everything that he said, I thought that I could say it better. So I worked hard. I preached a lot. I met with a lot of people. And on the surface, no one could tell. Ministry was going great. People were appreciative of my service in the church, but I had come to the starting, startling realization that ministry wasn't going great because I actually cared about the ministry, but because I cared about myself. What drove me to work hard in ministry ultimately wasn't because I wanted to help those in the ministry like you guys, but because I wanted to help myself be better than my coworkers and those around me. I wanted to be seen as harder working than anyone else on staff. And one of the hindrances of helping one another is pretending that we're helping others when we're actually helping ourselves. Can you see why verse 26 is the very opposite of being spirit-filled? It's because conceit is a competition with other people. Where can I win? How can I be better than this person? Conceit will never think, how can I help others be the best that they can be at cost to myself? But will rather think, how can I be the best that I can be at cost to others. In fact, this lack of perceived honor or esteem will either cause us to provoke others or envy others. Why? Well, the word for provoke is a word that is typically used in combat or athletic competitions. And, and envy, to envy is to desire something that someone else has or to wish that someone else doesn't have what you want. I don't know how this illustration really relates to this message, but I'm just going to use it anyway because it's funny, kind of cute. But when I was in Texas, um, during my two month break, Megan and I were able to catch up with some good friends. And, uh, one of our friends was telling us how their middle child who is five years old is always getting bossed around by his older brother, who is like seven and his younger sister, who's like three. And he's always walking around the house saying, I get no respect. I get no respect. And you can just imagine like this, this five-year-old walking around saying that, um, actually, I don't, I don't really know how this illustration really had to do with my point, but oh, well. But what, what do provocation and envy have to do with conceit? It's because both are different forms of conceit. Provoking is the stance of someone who is convinced of their superiority, looking down on someone perceived to be weaker, while envy is the stance of someone who is self-consciously aware of their inferiority, looking up at someone whom they feel is above them, trying to compensate for their perceived sense of inferiority. And so how do we know which stance we tend to take? Well, let me ask you a few questions. Do you tend to pick arguments with others or do you tend to avoid confrontation with others? When criticized, do you get confrontational and retaliate, listing everything the other person has done wrong? Or do you tend to get discouraged and passive, making excuses and giving right in to people's criticisms? Do you think to yourself, I would never, ever do what this person did, 
or say what this person said to this other person in the spirit of judgmentalism? Or do you ever think to yourself, I will, I will do whatever it takes to be better than this other person. I don't care if I have to cheat or lie. I will do whatever it takes. Or when we look at the success or lack of success in others, do you ever magnify your own success and abilities? Or do you magnify your lack of ability and success? Do we tend to be self-righteous people or self-pitying people? And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that this feeling of perceived superiority and perceived inferiority, both have its roots in conceit. Both the superior and inferior person are primarily absorbed with themselves. In either case, the person is focusing heavily on how the other person makes them feel and look instead of how they make the other person feel and look. Now, you guys might think that you are never, ever conceited. You would never be conceited. That you would never feel superior or inferior to others. But when you walked into the first classroom on your first day of school yesterday or this past week, what did you do? You looked at those people, didn't you? And many of us do this without realizing it. When we look at these people, we are making micro internal judgments about them. You made mental appraisals and calculations even as you entered into high school group tonight. We size people up in comparison to others in our heads. That's just what we do or can't help doing. I mean, look, we look at what people wear or don't wear. We look at how people carry themselves. Sometimes the reason why we talk to this person as opposed to this other person is simply based on the fact that this person seems less intimidating than the other person. And if it's possible for this internal comparison to happen in school or in social gatherings, should we be surprised that this happens in the church? In fact, comparison is probably, probably actually happens the most in churches, especially our church, this high school group. Do you know how easy it is to compare at church? If the currency of comparison is status, knowledge, ability, what you know, who, who you know, it's almost impossible not to compare. I mean, it's crazy how much we compare. The, this person seems way gollier than me. This person knows way more than I do. This person is way more well-spoken of me. This person has a nicer house than me. This person knows way more people than I do. This person dresses better than I do, looks better than I do, but doesn't suffer or struggle as much as I do. This person is just better than me in every single possible way. We vacillate between extremes of self-righteousness or self-pity all the time. And so I want to get very specific with this high school group. One way to tear down this high school group is for the upperclassmen to provoke the underclassmen by looking down on them, being apathetic toward them, not associating with them, not talking to them, not being willing to give your time and attention to them. That is one way that we tear this group down. Another way to tear this high school group down is for the underclassmen to envy the upperclassmen by either ignoring the, under, the upperclassmen to only forge relationships with those around you because you don't want to face discouragement from the upperclassmen to try not to talking to try not to talking to the upperclassmen because of the assumption that they will never talk that they'll never want to talk to you. Now this doesn't mean that upperclassmen only provoke or underclassmen only envy. The reality is that we all do it. And what I want us to see in either stance, whether with those around us or not, 
is that in both provoking and in envying, no one actually helps one another. Everyone is, isn't looking out for one another, but only for themselves. I mean, how can we help others when we see everyone else as an adversary, as someone to conquer? This goes against everything that we know about the Spirit. The reason why we went over a mini-theology lesson earlier about the Spirit is because part of the role of the Spirit is to deflect and to direct us toward Jesus. That despite who He is as God the Spirit, the mission of the Spirit is to turn our gaze not toward Himself, but toward the Son. And the Spirit is happy and pleased to do it. In other words, as much as the Spirit is God, it isn't about Him. His MO is to spotlight someone else other than Himself. This is who resides in us. The Spirit who helps us in our weakness and the Spirit who deflects attention away from Himself and toward the Son. And in directing us toward the Son, we are reminded exactly of who the Son is and what He did for us. Despite being God, in the incarnation, the Son took on humanity. He assumed human flesh, taking upon human nature, becoming like us. If there was anyone who should have received respect, it should have been Jesus. Instead, Jesus bore our burdens our griefs, and our transgressions. If Jesus did not count equality with God as something to take advantage of or to make others feel inferior about themselves, what does that tell us about ourselves? It means that what we think and the story that we tell ourselves is not the most important or truest thing about us. What you think about yourself, okay, think about yourself, okay? What you think about yourself whether in a self-perceived sense of superiority or inferiority, is not the truest thing about you. What is the truest thing about you? The truest thing about you is that you are loved by the triune God, period, full stop. Before any good or bad, before any success or failure, before any prosperity or suffering, you are loved by the God who is supremely and uniquely love. That cannot and will not change because God cannot change. And I know this is Christianity 101, but sometimes we just need to go back to the basics. When was the last time you were, heard, you were told that God supremely loved you? And if you are a Christian, then the spirit of Jesus dwells within you which means that you are a child of the Father and nothing, absolutely nothing can, can touch that. No amount of good or bad that comes into your life can touch that. That is untouchable. And it is upon this unshakable identity and upon this unshakable foundation that we can be people who do not compare with those around us, whether here in this high school group, in small group, at school or home, at work, at, at the soccer field, or wherever, we can be far more constructive because of the Spirit. Jesus gives us his Spirit so that we share life, not fight over it and compete over it. And this very same Spirit who lives in us calls us to help and to look toward others and away from ourselves. And if the Spirit truly does dwell within you, 
then that's what this group can be. That's what it, I mean, it's, it's actually possible if you have the spirit in you. So instead of being conceited, what does the apostle Paul call us to be instead? Rather than comparing with one another, we care for one another, which brings us to our second point. Take a look at verse one and two, uh, verse one of chapter six. Second point, we care for one another. Chapter six, verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The inclination of the spirit is to help and to come to our aid. So it is no surprise that the Apostle Paul now calls spirit-filled Christians to help and to come to the aid of others. The first word the Apostle Paul intentionally uses in verse 1 is this Greek word adelphoi, which in our ESV is translated as brothers. But you'll notice in the footnotes of your Bibles that it actually says brothers and sisters. A better way to translate adelphoi is actually family. The person sitting next to you isn't your enemy or your adversary. They are your family. And what we need to know about Galatians, since we're just eavesdropping into this letter, is that the Galatian community was a community full of Jews and Gentiles. And if you know anything about Jews and Gentile relationships, Jews did not associate themselves with Gentiles and vice versa. They just never did. And yet through Jesus, the Messiah, by his spirit, God has not only brought Jew and Gentile together, but he gives them a new name and a new way of relating with one another. He calls them Adelphoi, family. The apostle Paul wants us to see one another as family. If you are a Christian, that is what is true of you. That is your God-given reality. The person sitting next to you, whether they are blood-related or not, is your family. In fact, this spiritual reality supersedes your earthly reality. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, take what you know about your earthly family, the care, the warmth, the teasing, the relationships, the depth, and apply that to your spiritual family. And when you see your siblings struggle, what does a good sibling do? Make fun of them, of course. Just kidding. But after the teasing, we help them. When we see struggle, difficulty, hardship, and suffering, we can't bear to see them struggle. I mean, if you're a sibling, you know that. If you saw your brother or sister getting picked on by someone at school, what would you do? You would help them. You don't ignore them. To ignore them is to violate and betray your relationship with your sibling. Fundamental to your relationship with your sibling is to care to demonstrate concern, to help. Of course, we know that all, not all struggle is bad. Some struggle is necessary to be a resilient, thriving human being. But while we can't do our siblings' homework for them, we can help them. We can explain concepts and ideas. We can break down and simplify ideas for it to help them. And with that same level of care and concern that you have for such earthly family, the Apostle Paul wants you to apply that care and concern for your spiritual family. As much as you do it or not for your earthly family, the Apostle Paul expects that you do it for your spiritual family. No matter how imperfect your family is, or no matter how imperfect your care for your family is, your earthly family is given to you to help you better understand and your spiritual 
to, under, to better understand your spiritual family and to apply what you do for your earthly family to your spiritual family. And so what sort of care and concern is the Apostle Paul talking about? The first is a care that restores. A care that restores. Take a look again at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When a sibling is in need of help, the Apostle Paul says that we don't ignore them, but we restore them, we rehabilitate them. The Apostle Paul does, does, does not make this type of help optional because he says, you who are spiritual. Who is spiritual? If you are a Christian, it means that you are filled with the Spirit. Anyone in this gym who follows Jesus is spiritual because you have the Spirit. The Spirit is given to every single Christian, not a special group of elite Christians reserved for the upperclassmen. And as a result, their call is that you who are spiritual are to restore and to help. But why is gentle help and restoration the proper response to transgression? Because of that little phrase, caught in. Now, what does the Apostle Paul mean? The Apostle Paul simply, simply means that sometimes there are sins that we commit because they delight us. But sometimes there are sins that we commit because they come to afflict us. It is the kind of sin that makes us feel ashamed. A sin that, is, that catches us by surprise. A sin that does not delight us, but afflicts us. A sin that engulfs us and overcomes us. And it is in this instance that the proper res- spiritual response isn't restoration in a spirit of self-righteousness. To thank God that you are not like them. Nor is it a restoration by way of not talking about it at all and pretending nothing happened. Rather, it is in the spirit of gentleness that we, are to gen- to, that we are to restore those who have been overtaken by their sins and struggles. When we see someone struggling with sin, when we hear of someone struggling with sin, the proper response isn't to criticize or to talk behind their back, to ostracize them, to exclude them from your friend group, to speak harshly with them. Nor is it to pretend that you don't know anything about it, to ignore it and to sweep it under the rug so that your relationship doesn't suffer from any awkwardness of having to talk about it. Our spiritual response is to gently, with great care, restore someone who is broken over and ashamed because of their sin. And you know the word that the Apostle Paul uses for restore is interesting because it's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. The Greek word for restore happens to be the same word that is used when the disciples are in their boats mending their fishing nets. The goal of restoration is to mend what was torn. To put back together that which is out of order and place. It is the same medical word that is used when doctors are setting a dislocated bone back into place. To not restore and to not mend someone overtaken by their sin is to violate and betray the relationship that you ought to have with them. To genuinely love others is to mend even if it's painful. To genuinely care for others is to restore even if it might be awkward. And the Apostle Paul gives us an incentive for doing so. He says in verse 1 again, he says, To keep watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. Does the Apostle Paul mean that we will be tempted by the same sin that the other person struggles with? I mean, that doesn't seem to be likely because we don't sin by osmosis. The, The answer is actually in the text. 
The Apostle Paul says, lest you too be tempted. We are to restore others in a spirit of gentleness and love because we never know when we ourselves will be tempted to and will need the same restoration. Restoring others means that you too will likely need restoration. Restoring you means that I too will likely need restoration from you. The incentive for restoring others like this is that we hope that we, would, that we do for others I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The incentive for, for restoring others like this is that we hope that we do for others is what others would eventually do for us. We bless you. We restore those broken by their sin because we remember our brokenness by our own sin. It is the humble recognition that the person we are restoring is no different than the person restoring them. In fact, one commentator writes, today they are reinstating one who has sinned, but tomorrow they may need to be reinstated. Those who recognize and come to the need and aid of others are those who readily acknowledge and recognize in themselves the very same need and aid. This is the only way that restoration will not be tainted by hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We gently take the log out of another person's eye only because we know there's a huge log in our eye as well and we'll need their help taking it out. The, the extent that you help others demonstrates the extent of your own need. That is the law of Jesus. We do for others what we would want others to do for us. Before we move on to the next verse, I want us to just back up a little bit and zoom out. Let's not go on a sin hunt with this high school group. But the Apostle Paul says that those who have been saved by Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit are family. You are now brother and sister, even if you are not blood related. Never mind knowing their sin. The question is, do you even know the person sitting next to you? Like actually know. To know that the sin that has caught someone off guard implies that you at least know the person personally. So let's just start with square one. Do you know the person sitting next to you? And if you're sitting with your actual sibling or friend, do you know the person sitting across the gym? The person behind you? The person in front of you. To know the sin that has, I'm sorry, do we know one another? Not just a bunch of facts that we could probably find out about someone if we just stalk them on Instagram and probably hide by deleting their handle in your search. And I'm not asking this for the sake of finding out people's hidden sins, but if we really are a family, let's actually try to be one and act like one. I know some of you have far more important relationships at school at home, at sports, than the ones you have here. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But you're here. So do you want to do something about that? I mean, if you're here, you might as well invest, right? I mean, if you're here, you might as well get to know the people that are here in your small group. It's better than showing up all cool, glancing on your phone, disturbing others, just waiting for when you can go home. I mean, that benefits no one except that benefits no one or yourself. And maybe if you did get to know some people here, maybe you actually find that they're more like you than unlike you. I'm not going to pretend that you guys will be buddy-buddy. I'm not even asking for that. But what I'm appealing to you is your supposed common bond, that if you actually are supposedly a professing Christian, if you really are a Christian, if you are really indwelt by the Spirit, if you really are a Christian, why don't you actually start acting like one? 
Be involved, be invested. Be on the lookout for those around you. Stop thinking about yourself for a moment. One of the reasons why we have small groups isn't because it's just like the thing that churches do. Like, gosh, I hate that small groups seem so perfunctory. Small groups in youth group exist so that you can actually be real. I mean, that's the, that's the purpose of why we do that. It's not just because it's like, it's a good Christian thing to do. Like we, we put you intentionally together so that you can actually be honest and real with one another in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. I hope that through small groups, and, and in fact, small groups is really actually just the starting point. I hope through small groups that, uh, that you guys can connect, follow up outside of youth group without the prodding of yours truly or even other leaders here. And we will be there to prod you, but you guys are high schoolers. Like have some sense of responsibility for one another. Don't leave others out. You know, it's funny that I talk about small groups because more than half of the high school lady leaders are gone. So ladies, you guys don't really have official small groups tonight. You just be playing a game. So really get to know one another. It's our first night back with our new ninth graders. Let's try to get to know one another. I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just being too idealistic, but at least, let's at least try. Before I move on and before you guys just forget, I, I want to clarify that I know I don't speak for all of you. Because I know for some of you here, you're already so involved, like so invested. And that's great. That's awesome. I hope people look up to you. I thank God for that. Let's excel even more. Let's, let's help get the rest of the other students involved because that's what the spirit does. The spirit helps. So we help. The spirit focuses our attention on Jesus. So let's do that for one another here. The spirit intercedes for us. So let's intercede for one another here. The spirit reminds us of Jesus' words. So let us remind one another of Jesus' words. Finally, the second kind of care that the apostle Paul expects us to participate in is a care that bears. A care that bears. That was not intentional. I was not trying to rhyme. A care that bears. Bear with one another, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In the previous verse, the Apostle Paul got very specific with sin. But in the second verse, the Apostle Paul broadens the scope of care. And the genius of one another's burdens, what Paul says there, is that it's, un, it's, it's like an empty check. It's a fill in the blank. What burdens do you have? That's what, that's what makes this verse so practical. But what does the Apostle Paul actually mean by bearing the burdens of others? Well, part of bearing the burden, one another's burdens, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul himself in Romans, is to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. But a criticism that I've heard of this kind of empathy is that to weep only because the person is weeping isn't actually caring at all. It's said that it's disingenuous and insincere to cry only because the other person is crying. Because you're not moved by their actual sorrows and burdens. You're only moved by their tears. But is that actually what the Apostle Paul is saying? The Apostle Paul's words only make sense when you actually and deeply care about someone as if this person's experiences were your own. It is, to bear one another's burdens is the assumption of the other person's burdens. To genuinely weep with others is only possible if we care about the affliction of the weeper. To sincerely weep with others is only possible once we've entered into the shoes of the weeper. 
And what we see is that at the heart of bearing one another's burdens is to put yourselves in the shoes of the burdened and to understand and see how they feel. What makes them feel burdened, worried, fearful, depressed? A crucial first initial step in bearing the burdens of the burdened is to first understand how they feel, to understand what their experience is like as best as you can. How would you feel if you had experienced the same loss as the other person? How would you feel if you had experienced the same sense of doubt as the other person? How would you feel if you had experienced the same sense of frustration and despair as the other person? If we actually took the time and consideration to place ourselves in someone else's shoes just for a moment, maybe it would actually help us think twice about what we say to comfort others. If we place ourselves in the shoes of the depressed, if we understood just a little bit, a bit about what it means to experience life monochromatically, if we understood just a little bit more about what it means to struggle with unwanted sin, habitual oppressive thoughts of self-harm, maybe it would actually expand our patience, not diminish it. If we understood just a little bit more about the fears, worries, doubts, and concerns of others, maybe it would actually sharpen and make us wiser with our words and our actions. Maybe it would prevent us from making empty platitudes such as don't worry or check your heart. And if we understood just a little bit more about the burdened, maybe it would make us come to a place of holy contrition and repentance to apologize to the burden for our lack of care, our lack of being with others, our lack of patience, to apologize to God for how we have failed to treat others the way that he would treat the brokenhearted and the downcast. Look, I know that out of a genuine desire to help, many of us want a list of actionable items, a, a set of to-do things to help people. But sometimes helping people can't be reduced to a set of actionable to-dos. Christianity doesn't work like that. Like, how do you fix depression? Not even mental health professionals know how to fix depression. This doesn't mean that they can't help, but fundamentally, de depression, for example, isn't something to be fixed, but something to suffer with. The same is true for other things that come into our lives as intrusions and unwanted desires. For some reason, by our trite responses and perceived care for others, we think that those who suffer actually want to suffer. Like, you think people want to be depressed, to suffer from same-sex attraction? Just to suffer from desires that they don't want, that they want to suppress? You think they want that? I'm convinced that what we need more of isn't practical how-tos. Not that that isn't helpful, not that it doesn't have its time and place, but I'm convinced that we need more, what we need more of is simply caring more. I mean, we get so bogged down by to-do lists, steps that we miss the person entirely. The call to bear one another's burdens calls to mind something so basic, so fundamental that the person can often be obscured by a, a set of practical to-do lists. We must be careful equating caring for people with fixing people's problems. I mean, we think that, we, we, for some reason, we think that the counseling ministry does that, like we just fix people's problems. It's not what the counseling ministry does. People are not the sum total of their problems or their sufferings. And so if we just understood a bit more the burdened, just a bit more, if we just understood them a bit more, maybe we would see them in a new light, not as a problem to be solved, 
but a person to be loved and cared for. To be able to, 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 to name, to, to phrase the sufferer's struggles better than they can name their own struggles. To identify with others, to be concerned, to be genuinely invested in their lives, to ask good questions. When we are able to do that, just the simple necessities of what it means to be a human, to care, when we are able to do that, I'm convinced that we can come up with a better way to help others than a generic five-step process. We will thank them for sharing. We will actually follow up with them. We will actually ask them how they're doing. We will actually ask how we can be praying for them. We will sometimes not say a thing at all. We will just sit with them. We will cry with them. We will help them. We will be with them. One of the reasons why people who suffer are also people who feel lonely is because people who suffer feel like no one else can understand them. No one else can understand their struggles. No one else can understand their pain. So they go somewhere else. It's no surprise that they go somewhere other than the church because they feel like the church has no answers for that at all. No presence in the midst of their suffering. As much as sufferers want their pain and unwanted desires and struggles to go away, what sufferers want isn't merely a solution. What they want ultimately, I think, is a friend. When you hurt and when you struggle, I mean, isn't that what you want? When I hurt and when I struggle, when is, isn't that what I want? A friend who can be there for them, a friend who will listen, a friend who won't cast judgment on them when, though there may be sin involved, a friend who cares about them deep enough to tell them that they're self-pitying, that they're thinking about it the wrong way, a friend who will cry with them. I mean, don't we all want a friend who loves like Jesus loves? Only when we have accurately done the hard work of bearing one another's burdens to understand and to step into the shoes of the afflicted will we have fulfilled the law of the Messiah. In fact, not only will we fulfill the law of of Jesus, we will come to a full understanding of what exactly Jesus did for us. What is the law of the Messiah if not for the Messiah's entire way of life? The Apostle Paul's call to bear one, another, one another's burdens, first and foremost, isn't something new. It is something that has already been done for us. The call to bearing one another's burdens wasn't theoretical for the Apostle Paul. It was something done for him, something done for you, something done for me. What burdens do you face today? What, what sins, what struggles, what unwanted desires, sufferings do you face today? Jesus bore that burden for you. That is the truest thing. The point of Jesus' death on the cross was, and I, want, I want to be very clear about this, the point of Jesus' death on the cross was not to eliminate the presence of suffering, struggle, and sin in your life. The reality is that all, the, all three of those things still exist in our life, and Jesus has died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So what was the point of Jesus' death on the cross? It was to eliminate the holy abandonment that you would face from God, which is an eternally worser fate. I mean, what's worse, to be separated from God or to not fear or to not have any sin for the rest of your life? To restore and mend us back to himself, the Father sent his Son because he loved us. 
not wishing that we would perish nor face his abandonment, the father sent the son to step into human flesh. And by stepping into human flesh, Jesus fully, I mean, we don't realize this. He fully bore the collective burden of being human. The collective burden of humanity. In his human life, he fully understood our toil. He fully understood our weakness, our frailty, our fallenness, our heartbreak, our trauma, our depression, all of it. So how can we say that Jesus never understands our condition at all? How can we say that when he experienced it all for us? And he experienced it so perfectly yet without sin. It is amazing. Jesus took on the suffering of the burdened took on the penalty of our sin, took on the torment of the afflicted, not so, that, not so we wouldn't have to ever again, but so that we would have him in the midst of it. That is the point of the gospel, is that you would have Jesus in the midst of your troubles. And one day, Jesus will return to reverse all the effects of the fall. One day, Jesus will restore everything. One day, Jesus will bring total and ultimate renewal. One day, everything will change in the twinkling of an eye. But today, we have, we have this sure and steady promise. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will be with us yesterday, today, and forever. This is what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ, his Son, by the Spirit. Jesus, the Son, bore our burdens, our afflictions, and our grief. He carried our transgression. And by the Spirit, this is why. That is the foundation. That is the bedrock of why we now demonstrate and bear the burdens of others. It's only simply because Jesus did it for us. I mean, it's simple spiritual arithmetic. That is how we truly obey the law of the royal Messiah. As we conclude, I want you guys to, to dream with me a little bit. To imagine something with me. Imagine a, a group of high schoolers who can entrust themselves to one another. Who can honestly bring their burdens to the, the other person sitting next to them. Imagine that you can speak of your pain and then someone responds with compassion and prayer. Imagine that you can speak of your joys and someone shares in them with you. You can even ask for help with simple struggles and someone prays for you, offers words of hope, comfort, encouragement, and maybe even from scripture and sticks with you in sin and suffering. Imagine that there's openness, that there's freedom, friendship, giving and receiving wisdom. And imagine that it's this high school group I mean, can you, can you dream of that with me? Can you imagine that? If so, can you work toward that with me? I'm trying to, we're, we're trying to build a culture here to do that. Do you guys want to come along? Do you guys want that? Ninth, ninth grader, do you want that for the next four years of your life here? Where maybe you didn't learn the most stuff. Maybe you didn't have the most fun. Maybe you didn't meet your best friend, but at least you knew that you had a, high school group that cared for you? Do you want that? And if so, the reality is that we can. Not because we can try to be, but because we already are. We are God's spirit-filled family. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, and it really has to be by your grace because we can't do it on our own. And it has to be done through Jesus by the Spirit. But God, I, I pray that you would really make this high school group a, a group that is special, not, not for me, but for one another here. I pray that, that this dream would actually come, become a reality. I pray that these high schoolers would actually come to trust one another, to depend on one another. And it doesn't have to be everyone here, but Father, I pray that it would be two, three people, four people, five people, that they would form a, 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 knit of pe- a, a group of people who, who can bear their burdens, who can name their struggles, who can pray for them, who can comfort them, who can be with them, who can just be there for them, who can be their friend. God, I, I desire that, Father, and you know that, Lord. And so I, I pray that you would, it has to be you. I, I, can't, I can't do it. I, I, chances are the kids are going to probably forget, Father. And so I pray that you would really impress upon, make this particular evening special, not because we did anything special, but because by your grace, the Spirit actually moved in the hearts of the students here, that the Spirit actually created a spark a desire to move toward one another in love, a desire to be involved in one another's lives that, that goes beyond just asking how we're doing or how school was or how so-and-so was, but to actually care, to actually go deeper. God, I long that, for that, and I pray that the high schoolers would long for that too. I pray that they would catch on this vision, and I pray that that vision would be contagious, infectious, pray that people would desire that. So Father, please, by your grace, we dream of it. We pray that you pray that you make that of a reality. We pray this. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.